millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Before we get going today, I'd like to thank my latest Patreon supporters, Lana, Courtney, and Giles. All three of you are amazing, and I'm so grateful for your support. If you too would like to support the show, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash Queens of England podcast, where you'll find all the information you need. As always, you can keep up with the latest. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. news from the show on the Facebook page where I post all the new episodes as well as on the website queensofenglandpodcast.com and the Twitter page at Queen's Podcast. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Hello and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 58, Anne of Denmark, England's first Stuart Queen.
When James VI of Scots received the news that he was to become James I of England, his wife Anne was in fact pregnant, and so it was decided that she would stay in Scotland until she was fit to travel. James went down south with a group of nobles, among them John Eskin, the Earl of Mar. Now you will no doubt remember that the Mars of Stirling Castle were, at this point, supervising the upbringing of Prince Henry, James and Anne's eldest son, something that hugely rankled with her, as she didn't want anyone to have custody of her children but herself. Well, it had been decided that, when the time was right, Anne would bring Henry and her daughter Elizabeth down south with her, but she needed to wait for Ma to return and release the nine-year-old Henry into her care. However, when Ma's expected arrival date came and went, Anne decided that she had had enough and marched on Stirling Castle herself, along with a noble escort. Now, this wasn't a surprise attack or anything. She had no intention of attacking the castle, and indeed had given Ma's wife ample warning of her arrival. She was invited in, and stayed over for a couple of nights before informing the Countess of Ma that she intended to leave and bring her son with her, Earl or no Earl. This was done against all advice, and was a pretty provocative move. If you remember, Henry had been placed in the Mars care on the orders of the king, and he had left specific instructions that Anne should not be allowed to take Henry without his permission. The Countess, therefore, refused. The Queen did not react so well to this, and was so distressed that she left feeling violently ill and fainted, and would go on to miscarry the child that she was carrying shortly after. Some rather uncharitable sources claim that Anne was responsible for her own miscarriage, claiming that she took some, quote, balm water. But this seems both unlikely and totally slanderous. Eventually, the Earl of Mar did turn up, and neither he nor Anne were at all happy with this situation, leading both to dispatch letters to James in London, who one must imagine, had had enough on his plate without dealing with this domestic dispute, albeit one that he had at least a part in creating himself. James, as usual, sided with the Mars and despaired of the actions of his wife, but equally he needed her on his side, given the important role that she was required to play in his new kingdom. He needed her, and he needed Henry, and so he ordered his son to be released into Anne's care, along with a jewel. She then travelled with her two eldest children to Edinburgh, where she linked up with a large party of Scottish lords and ladies, and together they went south. She would never set foot in Scotland again. I think here, for the avoidance of confusion, it would be useful to quickly set out the constitutional situation. As I've said a few times already, Anne became the Queen of Three Kingdoms in 1603, when James took the throne of England. She was already Queen of Scots, of course, which makes two, and she was also now Queen of Ireland. The Kingdom of Ireland had been formed in 1542, when Henry VIII converted his lordship to a kingship for complex reasons that I won't go into, but it is fair to say that Ireland was really just a client kingdom under English rule. But, nonetheless, it was a kingdom. However, leaving Ireland to one side, as it is a different case, England and Scotland were still different kingdoms after James took the English throne. They had separate laws and customs, they had separate parliaments, and had no real shared policy. They had the same king, but he wore both crowns separately, not one combined one. Now, this wasn't a situation that James was particularly happy with. He hankered after a united British crown, but that situation would not come about for another century. To be clear, England and Scotland were not united 
by the Union of the Crowns in 1603. Now, of course, one might imagine James and Anne then to split their time between their two main kingdoms, show them equal love and respect, but that was not the case. England was the far more rich, prestigious and powerful crown in their collection, and so they stayed down south. And so now I guess we stop our brief foray into the Queen of Scots podcast and return to England. Anne arrived at Windsor on the 30th of June 1603, where she met a large group of English noblemen eager to meet their new queen and no doubt hoping for a place in her new household. All the way down south, she and her party had been mobbed by crowds eager to see their new queen. Anne Clifford, a diarist and noblewoman, wrote that she and her mother caused three horses to die of exhaustion in their haste to catch a glimpse of her. It was a sensation, and Anne gave a very good account of herself. Fame and the high life clearly suited her. She seemed, though, rather overwhelmed by the whole thing, apparently remarking when she arrived at Windsor, quote, There was such an infinite number of lords and ladies, and so great a court, as I think I shall never see the like again. She and James were crowned together a month later on St. James's Day at Westminster Abbey, the first time a queen had been crowned since Anne Boleyn. Interesting side fact, as the Stone of Schoon had been taken to England during the Scottish Wars of Independence, James and Anne were the first king and queen of Scots to be crowned on the stone for three centuries. Given the huge significance of the occasion, it may surprise you to hear that it was a pretty subdued coronation. Plague had returned to England, and so it was considered a matter of public safety that guests be kept to a minimum. It's hard to get too excited about a royal coronation if half the congregation drops dead of the Black Death. That said, plenty of people did come out to see the royal couple, and the whole affair was immortalised by Ben Johnson and Thomas Decker. Called the Coronation Triumph, it is mostly a bit of extremely naked propaganda and an elaborate effort to curry favour with the new king. As such, it doesn't pay all that much attention to Anne, but she does receive attention in this passage. Quote, And here she comes that is no less a part in this day's greatness than in my glad heart. Glory of queens and glory of your name, whose graces do as far outspeak your fame as fame doth silence when her trumpet rings. You, daughter, sister, wife of several kings, besides alliance and the style of mother, in which one title you drown all your other. Instance, be that fair shoot is gone before, your eldest joy and top of all your store. With those whose sight to us is yet denied, but not our zeal to them, or aught beside this city can to you, for whose estate she hopes you will be still good advocate to her best lord. So whilst you immortal are, no taste of sour mortality once dare approach your house, for fortune greets your grace, but coming on and with a forward face. The main thing that Johnson and Decker are emphasising is Anne's lineage. It mentions that she is the daughter, sister and wife of kings, it also mentions Prince Henry, who of course now has become Prince of Wales, again showing the vital importance of producing an heir. Then towards the end, it implores Anne to be a good advocate of London to the king. So just in this short verse, it has managed to hit all four of the most important facets of queenship. Advantage, motherhood, morality and influence. Not bad work, one has to say. The most important part of the ceremony, though, came at the time when the communion was taken, where Anne refused to take Anglican communion. Not exactly a strong move to ingratiate yourself to a Protestant kingdom. James, though, hardly helps at a good example either. 
he accepted a little kiss on the cheek from the Earl of Montgomery, which was considered, let's just say, a touch informal for so august an occasion. Now, I'm going to take the rest of this episode in a fairly thematic bent from now on, so let's talk now about her religious convictions in more detail. I spoke in the last episode about her conversion to Catholicism during her reign as Queen of Scots. This did not mean that she abandoned any of the public religious roles expected of her, She attended Protestant church ceremonies, had Protestant chaplains in her household, and listened to Protestant preachers. But this was for show. In private, she was a full practicing Catholic, and this double life was a course of action that the Catholic Church tacitly accepted. Prudently, she did not attempt to influence the religious upbringing of her children, something that everyone would have found absolutely intolerable. No one wanted a Catholic on the throne of England. The heirs had to be brought up Protestant. She also had no contact with the Catholic underground, the secret sinister cells of papists who often threatened to destroy the political and religious order, and on a certain remember day in November 1605, almost did so. This toleration of the Queen's religion was rather flimsily held though, and only worked if everyone was just cool about it, and pretended it wasn't happening. When this didn't happen, it meant trouble. One such occasion was a year into her time in England, where the Pope sent, through the English ambassador to Rome, a rosary, a cross, and a note, saying that she was much in his prayers, and that he hoped she was working on converting her husband to the true faith. This was considered several strides too far by everyone, and saw the ambassador arrested, and Anne's position weakened, though she did later secure his release from prison. Unsurprisingly, given her lack of enthusiasm for Protestantism, Anne was not a particularly strong patron of the established church, offering very little patronage and receiving very few dedications of religious works. Indeed, it has been argued that she wasn't even a particularly zealous woman either way when it came to religion, though given how much trouble being a Catholic brought her, I find that a little difficult to believe. That said, confusion about her zeal came from the highest place there was. According to the Pope, quote, Not considering the inconstancy of that queen and the many changes she had made in religious matters, and that even if it might be true that she might be a Catholic, one should not take on oneself any judgment. Moving on from religion, let's look at Anne as a mother during these years. In the last episode, I went through all of her children in one go for the sake of completeness, but she actually gave birth to her final two daughters after her arrival in England, both of whom tragically died young last one after only a few hours of life. But, while the death of any child is beyond awful, the greatest blow, at least dynastically, came in 1612, when her eldest son, Henry Prince of Wales, died very suddenly. Anne was a very devoted mother to Henry. In her view, she had a lot of time to make up for, after he had been raised away from her at Stirling during his early childhood, and according to one contemporary, she, quote, could not bear him out of her sight. When she heard the news... She sat in a darkened room at Somerset House for days, refusing to see anyone weeping uncontrollably. This did not mean, though, that she neglected her other children. She was particularly devoted to Charles. He was a sickly, shy child, had trouble walking, and spoke in a very high-pitched voice. James, who clearly had bold views on parenting, suggested that, quote, The string under his tongue should be cut, for he so long beginning to speak as he thought he would never have spoke. Then he would have put him in iron boots to strengthen his sinews and joints. Both Anne and Charles's guardian, Lady Carey, strongly opposed these measures, 
and won out over James. Their bond was at its strongest after Henry's death, with her being her chief comforter, and the two exchanged many loving letters, many of which survive. As for her other child, Elizabeth, less survives regarding their relationship, which has led some historians to suggest that they were not close. However, it may simply be that this is due to the fact that contemporaries just weren't all that interested in writing about the princess. The main involvement in her life that was much written and spoken about is her marriage. As the only surviving daughter of the King and Queen of England, there was no shortage of offers for Elizabeth's hand, but Anne was a very particular mother-in-law. She rejected a Swedish suit because, as a Dane, she didn't want to see her daughter marrying into a rival kingdom to her own. She would have much preferred to see Elizabeth marry a Catholic like herself, and so promoted either a French or Habsburg marriage, the Duke of Savoy being her top choice. James, on the other hand, had two requirements for any suitor for his daughter's hand. He had to be A, Protestant, and B, accept a low dowry, because England was broke and he was stingy. This is the main reason behind his support of the suit of the Count of the Palatinate. Anne disapproved, not really because of his religion, actually, but because he was a mere count, hardly exalted enough for a princess of three kingdoms. But Elizabeth loved the Count, and James fully approved. When Anne demeaned the Count to her daughter, Elizabeth replied that she would rather be his wife, quote, than the greatest papist queen in Christendom. Bit of a sick burn there. Despite her disapproval, Anne took full part in the betrothal ceremony and the wedding, playing the part of proud mother and state host of the German delegation. But she never approved of him, thinking him rather unintelligent and just generally not good enough. She and James were, though, of one mind in the choice of bride for Prince Henry, as they both wanted the daughter of the King of Spain to be his bride and future queen. She was Catholic and from the most prestigious of royal houses, which were big ticks for Anne, and James liked the fact that she would bring a big dowry and good relations with Spain. When this fell through, they were both bitterly disappointed, a rare moment where both husband and wife were singing from the same hymn sheet. Regarding Charles's marriage, again, a Spanish match was proposed, the Infanta Anna being their main target, and once again, both James and Anne pushed hard for this to happen, but, once again, these negotiations would fall through, thanks to opposition in Parliament and Spanish double-dealing. While Anne did have a bit of influence over her children's marriage negotiations, Anne played less of a role politically in England than she had done well up in Scotland. She wasn't completely absent, though, in this regard. As we all know, one of the main roles of a queen was to intercede on behalf of subjects that she felt the king may have treated too harshly, and she did so in the case of the Secretary of State for Scotland, who had been convicted of treason. Yet she was not always successful, as is proven when she tried to save the life of Sir Walter Raleigh. The famous explorer and former favourite of Queen Elizabeth had fallen on some pretty hard times and found himself convicted of treason and sentenced to death. Anne rather liked the roguish Sir Walter Raleigh, who had always been kind both to her and Prince Henry, and begged first the king's ministers and then her husband himself to spare him. According to one witness, quote, There was great means for his life, and I hear that the queen wrote very earnestly to the king to spare him, for that she had received great good by his receipts. But it was to no avail, and Raleigh was executed. A common criticism that crops up of Anne is that she was arrogant and proud. The Venetian ambassador reported to his master that she was, quote, full of kindness to those who support her, but on the other hand she is terrible, proud, and unendurable to those she dislikes. 
This is rather rich, I think, coming from certain male courtiers who had exactly the same appreciation for their own nobility and so-called specialness, but had the great advantage of male genitalia. In Scotland, you may remember, she had feuded with the Lord Chancellor John Maitland and the Earl of Mar, and she did not stop picking fights with noble lords while down in England. One man who really chafed her chaps was Henry Howard, the Earl of Northampton, because where there are Howards, there is trouble. He had put her down, saying that, quote, She was only the best subject, yet no less a subject than I. Northampton was one of three members of the Howard clan who dominated English politics in this time, and was quite a dangerous man for Anne to cross. But such things rarely troubled the Queen, who was very short of her own dignity. She was also deeply unfond of Robert Carr, the Earl of Somerset, who was one of the King's favourites. James had fallen in love with him, showering him with gifts and a healthy pension. He made no secret of his affections, planting great wet kisses on his cheek in front of the court and apparently fondling him in public as well. Carr was a political incompetent, but he was allied with Thomas Overbury, another man whom the Queen detested, and together their stars rose high, all the while Anne festered and stewed with anger. They exchanged snide remarks and bitched about each other to the king, who found himself once again well and truly caught in the middle. Carr became, in a sense, the Piers Gaveston to James's Edward II, though he was never as passive or incompetent as all that. And though, would have the last laugh, as she was involved in the spectacular fall of first Overbury, whom was betrayed by Carr, and then Carr, whom she pried away from James by promoting another man to be his lover, George Villiers. Now Anne wasn't exactly wild about simply pushing another young handsome man to her husband, but she and her allies at court recognised that Villiers could be their vehicle to destroying the Howards and gaining control of the kingdom. She was instrumental in making him a gentleman of the bedchamber, in more ways than one, nudge nudge, wink wink, being the one who persuaded James to do so, and who literally passed her husband the sword during the initiation. Anne and Villiers grew very fond of each other, with Anne calling him her, quote, kind dog. Villiers recognised that he owed his position to her, and Anne liked how he was a decorous influence on James, who was far better behaved at court while his favourite was about, and we'll get on to that a little bit later. They exchanged kind letters and clearly saw a great mutual benefit to working together. An unlikely, yet still successful partnership. So, we can see thanks to all of this that while Anne may not have been as involved in political affairs as some of her predecessors, she was still an active queen. Her greatest impact in public life though, other than being the mother of the heirs to the throne of course, was as the organiser of the court. Anne was an enthusiastic and sophisticated patron of the arts, and loved nothing more than putting on elaborate court entertainment. Her particular favourite were court masks. Now, I've talked about masks before in this show, but it occurs to me that I've never actually explained what these were. For a long time, I just thought that a mask was a masked ball, nothing more complicated than that. But I was actually wrong. I think the best way to describe it would be as a hybrid of a dance and a play that would involve complex and lavish set design and combined music, dancing, singing and acting with professional players mixing in with the courtly participants. The mask would be funded by patrons who made sure the performances used heavy allegory to promote themselves. This form of entertainment had its English genesis during the reign of Henry VIII, and they form an integral part in a number of Shakespeare plays, most notably Romeo and Juliet. It was in Stuart times, though, that they really hit their high-water mark, and this has a lot to do with Anne of Denmark. For her first great mask in 1604, 
she hired Ben Johnson, who you may remember from her coronation, to write the script, and the Italian painter Inigo Jones, who did the production and set design. The result was the Mask of Blackness. Jones's work included producing an effect that masterfully mimicked thundering waves and the moonlight glinting off a lake. Here it is described in one biography of Anne. Quote, the Mask of Blackness was a superb spectacle, as a great float, scallop-shaped, like a mother-of-pearl shell, came into view, drawn by seahorses, rising and falling with the waves. In the centre sat Queen Anne as Euphoria, her corsage blazing with jewels, and beside her the lively Lady Bedford, and around the other ladies of the court with blackened arms and faces as tributaries of the River Niger. Beside swam six great sea monsters with twelve torchbearers on their backs. So, this wasn't what you might call an especially politically correct play, either today or even at the time, as it was considered beneath oneself to fully black up, as it were. Normally, you simply wore the appropriate mask. Moreover, it featured many female players in traditionally male roles, quite the paradigm shift. It was also extremely expensive to put on, costing over £3,000. Though this mask was not a huge success, further ones were put on in the coming years, but Queen Anne largely steered clear, though the dream team of Johnson and Jones that she had put together dominated the courtly scene, with such performances as the Mask of the Hymen, not as disgusting or interesting as it sounds, unfortunately. It was not until 1608 that she dipped her toe in again, with the Mask of Beauty. Perhaps surprisingly given its poor reception, this was a direct sequel to The Mask of Blackness. This was even more lavish and spectacular than its predecessor, which meant that it was even more expensive, costing £4,000, which represented 3% of the kingdom's annual deficit just on its own. Clearly, Anne had not learned her lesson. Yet again, Anne was sent to stage, glittering in jewels, wearing an expensive costume with all her friends around her. This was followed the following year by The Mask of Queens, a standalone piece where she played the Queen of the Ocean, and cost even more at £5,000, as it had an anti-mask within the mask for added metaness. Yet again, she was front and centre with all her friends. Her final mask was actually her most muted, Love Freed from Ignorance and Folly, like all the others, by Johnson and Jones. This was set in the mysterious Orient, and starred Anne as the Queen, with her friends as the Daughter of the Moon. This cost far less than all the others, just over £700, perhaps reflecting the fact that the court was by now heavily in debt. Anne's masking career came to an end after the death of the Prince of Wales. Though of course the entertainments did not end, she just ceased to be actively involved. That said, the career of Ben Johnson and the development of the courtly mask owes a lot to the patronage and enthusiasm of Queen Anne. Her artistic patronage, though, did not solely lie in masks. She was an avid art collector, filling her residences with works from artists such as Paul Van Soma, Isaac Oliver and Daniel Mighton. Her love of masks also led to a love of music. According to the Spanish ambassador, quote, her chief pleasure is dancing and music, and she passes many hours each day in this way. Her court was the home of a great number of musicians, from trumpeters and violinists, as well as a harper, a fifer, and a drummer. She herself was proficient at the lute, 
the Virginals and the Lyra Vile. She didn't neglect the writers and playwrights either, being an avid commissioner of works, receiving a number of dedications and liked to support less well-off writers and get their works out there. She equally supported writers who were a little better known, such as one William Shakespeare. Her enthusiastic fandom for his work led to him gaining royal patronage, which is why his company became known as The King's Men, after a particularly well-received performance of As You Like It. We also know from another letter that she was a particular fan of Love's Labour's Loss. The extent of her influence at court as a calming influence on James mustn't be underestimated either. A great example of this came in 1606, when her brother Christian IV of Denmark came to visit. Danes were well known around Europe at the time for being heavy drinkers and party animals, and it seems that they brought their booze crews directly to the court. According to one courtier, quote, I think the Dane hath strangely wrought in our good English nobles, for whose whom I could never get to taste good liquor, now follow the fashion and wallow in beastly delights. The ladies abandon their sobriety and are seen to roll about in intoxication. Sounds like great fun to me. Now Anne, we know, disapproved greatly of this, and so when the party moved on to hunting grounds without the Queen present, things got extremely vagacy. Quote, One day a great feast was held, and after dinner the representation of Solomon, his temple, and the coming of the Queen of Sheba was made, or, as I may better say, was meant to have been made, before their majesties, by device of the Earl of Salisbury and others. But, alas, as all earthly things do fail to pour mortals in enjoyment, so did prove our presentment the hereof. The lady who did play the Queen's part did carry most precious gifts to both their majesties, but, forgetting the steps arising to the canopy, overset her caskets into his Danish majesty's lap, and fell at his feet, though I rather think it was in his face. Much was the hurry and confusion, cloths and napkins were at hand to make all clean. His majesty then got up and would dance with the Queen of Sheba, but he fell down and humbled himself before her, and was carried to an inner chamber and laid on a bed of state which was not a little defiled with the presence of the queen bestowed on his garments, such as wine, cream, jelly, beverage, cakes, spices, and other good matters. As I've said, one of the key roles of the queen was not only to organise the court and its entertainments and act as a host, but also provide an upright example and be the moral compass. Queenless courts could often be bawdy, violent, and, well, like how I just described. Queens were supposed to bring culture, refinement, and a certain sense of class, and we can see that Anne did this largely through what happened when her back was turned. That said, Anne did have her vices, and the principal one was spending money. I talked a lot about this when discussing the masks, about how expensive they all were, and her expenditure wasn't solely focused on those entertainments. She received a more than generous allowance from James, and she had plenty of houses and lands from which to accrue income. In total, we think she earned about £37,000 a year, but even so, she was forever in debt. How did she manage this? Well, her idea of paying people for various minor services rendered was to give them diamond rings. That didn't help, but it simply seems that she overspent on everything. Clothes, jewellery, patronage, entertainments. She was bailed out on numerous occasions by her husband, but occasionally she had to pawn her possessions to her creditors or exchange them for other goods as a sort of payment in kind. Sometimes such extravagance can be played off as something called useful splendour, using your spending power to show off how magnificent you were. 
This was definitely a part of it, but you could also argue it was simply because, in the words of my mother, she simply didn't know the value of money. Okay, so having given her a bit of a ticking off there, it's now time to bring our story to a close. Anne had never really been herself after the death of her son Henry. Reports suggest that she suffered intermittently from depression in the following years. Adding to her woes were a diagnosis by the royal physician of gout, an ulcerated leg, and, I hope you're sitting down, a flowing menzi. She also suffered from dropsy and consumption, and took numerous trips to various spas such as Bath to try and recover. Her health was particularly bad in the winter of 1619. Her doctor, in his infinite wisdom, prescribed soaring wood as the best way to get better. Gotta love quack doctors. But predictably, all this managed to achieve was to hemorrhage her lung. People were very concerned about her well-being, but not always for the best reason. Senior clerics saw this as their last opportunity to win her over to the true faith. But actually, she doubled down on her Catholicism, seeing priests and her confessor constantly. Her husband, on the other hand, was mostly concerned about her will and to whom she would leave her lands and possessions. He was worried that she would leave them to Charles or some of her Danish friends rather than to him. She eventually died on the 2nd of March 1619 at Hampton Court Palace of a combination of dropsy and consumption. She left her possessions and lands to Charles to dispose of as he saw fit, The reports suggest that her servants made up with anything not nailed down on their way out the door. The arrangements for her funeral took over two months to complete, which was a real pain for everyone, as until that happened everyone had to be in mourning, and Londoners chafed at having all of their entertainments curtailed. Her body lay in Denmark House for all this time, while the ladies of the court maintained a constant vigil. When eventually the funeral day arrived on the 13th of May, her body was taken in procession to Westminster Abbey, in the same pomp and splendour as had Queen Elizabeth, a fitting tribute to a daughter, sister and husband of kings, and the mother of the future king of three kingdoms. She was buried in King Henry VII's chapel, where an effigy of her was placed above her tomb, though it was unfortunately destroyed during the civil wars. Her husband, as was normal for such occasions, was not present at the funeral, but he did turn to verse to remember her. So did my queen from hence her court remove, and left off earth to be enthroned above. She's changed, not dead for sure, no good prince dies, but, as the sun sets, only four to rise. As I said in last week's episode, Anne of Denmark is not an especially well-known queen, and amongst the historical tradition that has preserved her memory, she's often been castigated as being some combination of irrelevant, unintelligent, meddling, spendthrift, frivolous, and unworthy. Yet, I hope that I have painted, for you, a portrait of a woman who was far more than just that. She was headstrong, yes, but that's just another word for someone who fought for what she believed in. She meddled, but isn't that just a man's word for a woman who played the same game as all of them? She spent way too much money, but also defined a courtly culture and presided over a sophisticated court in the face of a king who had all the cultural refinement of a punch to the groin. She had the twin difficulties of having to live up to the eminent example of Queen Elizabeth I, and to redefine the idea of what a queen consort was inside both a new royal dynasty and to a people, almost all of whom had never lived in a court with a queen consort before. Was she perfect? No. Far from it. But who is? Or was? And that is where I will leave it for this week. Next time, we will look at Henrietta Maria of France, the wife of King Charles I, 
If you think that Anne had an eventful life full of great highs and crushing lows, then, <laughs> well, you'll just have to wait and see. Bye.